All right, so let's get started. We have a lot to cover in these final episodes of the season finale of Behind the Icons Special Investigation. We're breaking down the Netflix documentary, The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, The Unheard Tapes. And for people that know a lot about Marilyn Monroe, including myself, I have to say it was confusing. I had no idea who was saying what on these tapes. And in some cases, didn't even know who the people were. So I've got Donald McGovern with me, who is part of the panel. He also has an excellent blog out there. So if you haven't read it or gone to the website, there is a lot of detail and he breaks it down for you. And we're going to do some of that today, but it's Marilyn from the 22ndrow.com. And there's a lot there, not only around the Netflix documentary, but some of the other books and some of the other rumors that are out there that you can see for yourself. What is a fact? What is a probable theory? And what exactly is an outlandish rumor? Welcome Donald McGovern to the show. We have a wonderful time for you and I to be able to break down the mystery of Marilyn Monroe, the unheard tapes. So Don, you and I were talking right before the show. And at first I had a belief that Marilyn Monroe was for sure murdered. And it wasn't until I started the investigation that I started to realize that all these rumors and all these innuendos just didn't add up. And then you said, well, gosh, Nina, I kind of felt the same way. So tell me how you started to change your mind. What was your belief system going into the Marilyn Monroe story? Well, when I first got involved in Marilyn's life and and headed toward becoming a Marilyn obsessive, uh, I was reading a lot of articles, primarily internet articles, that espoused the view that the Kennedys were involved in her death, possibly the mob. But as I read more and more books and I read what I would call legitimate biographies, uh, the one by Donald Spoto, for example, the one by our friend Gary Vitaco Robles, it just became clear to me that it just didn't add up. All of the innuendos and the suppositions and the outlandish stories just did not make any sense. And the deeper I got into it, the more I realized that most of it is just untrue. It's sensationalism. And it's done for one reason and one reason only, and that is to earn a buck. This Maryland machine has been going on, and specifically even more so this year on our 60th anniversary of her death. But I want the audience to have an open mind because I think it wasn't until I started to get into the story myself and realized that what I thought was true actually didn't add up as well. And so we're going to start with the first cassette tape on the mystery of Marilyn Monroe. And I said in the intro, Don, that it's confusing. And it was confusing for me. I had no idea who all these people were and then trying to follow it. So the first person is cassette 71A and it's Al Rosen. Who exactly is Al Rosen? Well, Al Rosen was an agent who started the Al Rosen Agency. Beyond that, I don't know anything else about the man. He was not Marilyn's agent, which Summers does not reveal that to his to his audience. He was never Marilyn's agent, which doesn't mean they couldn't have known each other. But he said that he knew Marilyn when she was a kid, which is kind of funny, considering 
she didn't sign her box contract until August of 46 when she was 20 years old. So I wouldn't call her a kid at age 20. She had been married for four years and said recently divorced. But he couldn't have known Marilyn when she was a kid because she wasn't involved in Hollywood when she was a kid. So it starts out as if Marilyn is literally having an affair with the studio head. So let's talk about that. Well, Joseph Skink was not involved in 20th Century Fox at the time he met Marilyn. He had already basically retired. He was still a powerful player in Hollywood. In fact, when Maurice Solitaire wrote his biography in 1960, while Marilyn was still alive, she demanded that he present the relationship that she had with Mr. Skink correctly, that they were not lovers. She was not Joseph Skink's girlfriend. According to both of them, they were not involved in a romance. Uh, Albert Broccoli, who produced uh, nine 007 movies, nine James Bond movies, knew both Skank and Marilyn. He testified that the only thing Skank wanted from Marilyn was her friendship because Skank thought she was a very, very wonderful person and a sweet and a giving creature. So Broccoli testified that they were never lovers either. And also, and I think this is important to note, Al Rosen isn't in any of Marilyn's biographies. No, I have checked all the biographies and the pathographies that I have, and he's not mentioned in any of them. So here's the thing. It starts out right away with Marilyn having an affair with the studio head. And the reality is that not one credible Marilyn biographer has ever mentioned Al Rosen. And yet this is the one that you're leading with. So let's go to cassette 50A, Gloria Romanoff. Who in the world is this woman? Well, she was married to Michael Romanoff, who owned Romanoff's Restaurant, which is a very popular restaurant in Hollywood. They were married. Let's see. You want, well, let me, let me say a little bit about Michael first, okay? He was born in Lithuania in 1890, and he was born Herschel Gezugin. <laughs> and when he migrated to New York City, he assumed the name of Prince Michael Alexandrovich Dmitry Oblinsky Romanoff. He was a little bit of a fraud, Okay. Gloria said that they knew Marilyn in the 40s, in the early 40s, which would not have been possible because Marilyn Monroe didn't exist until August of 1946 when she signed her first contract with 20th Century Fox. So I think probably Michael just told Gloria that he knew Marilyn in the early 40s and she just believed him. Yeah, and then she's another one that goes on to talk about is if she knew Marilyn. So that also becomes a challenge because I don't even think Gloria is in any of her phone books, let alone that anybody ever talked about them knowing each other. Well, there's no proof that she didn't know Marilyn. There's no proof that she knew Marilyn. But I think what Summers was trying to do was to get Romanoff or, or Gloria to say, that she became involved with JFK in the 1950s. And he asked Gloria when she first started hearing about Marilyn and the Kennedys, but Gloria doesn't really answer that question. She tells Summers, and she says so on the tape, that JFK came out to California all through the 50s because he had a lot of friends out there. But she never says that she heard anything at all about Marilyn and JFK. So we've got cassette 84, John Houston, the director. So talk to us a little bit about John Houston. Well, he directed Marilyn in 1950 in the Asphalt Jungle. 
That was the first time he directed Marilyn in a movie. And then he directed her in The Misfits, which was the final movie that she completed because she didn't complete Something's Got to Give. Houston was an interesting character. Uh, he was kind of a rogue. He was an, an inveterate gambler, a heavy drinker. But his testimony, while it was complimentary of Marilyn to a certain extent, doesn't really paint the whole picture of Marilyn's relationship with Houston or what happened during the filming of The Misfits. He makes the reference as if Johnny Hyde were her sugar daddy. And I think that is very misleading, given the fact that she could have married this man 10 times over and chose not to. So talk and clear this up for people so they understand the relationship between Johnny Hyde and Marilyn Monroe. Well, Johnny Hyde was Marilyn Monroe's agent starting in 1949, I believe. And he fell in love with Marilyn and wanted to marry her. In fact, proposed to her many, many, many times. And even though Marilyn asked him not to, he left his family and moved into a house hoping that Marilyn would marry him. But she would not marry him because she said even though she loved Johnny Hyde, she was not in love with him. And for her to marry someone that she was not in love with would have been a violation of her moral code. She just wouldn't do it. And Skank, Joseph Skank, advised her to marry him because he had a lot of money and Marilyn would be financially fixed uh, if she married him. And Johnny was sick. He already had heart disease. And he knew he wasn't going to live much longer. And he told her, if you marry me, when I die, you'll inherit a lot of money. But Marilyn would not do it. I think that speaks pretty well to, to her character. Now, a lot of people have criticized Marilyn because she had an affair with Johnny. But uh, apparently, she asked him not to leave his family, but he did anyway. So let's talk a little bit about John Houston, because a lot of people think that it was Marilyn and the misfits, and she was always late. She was always a challenge, et cetera. But it sounds like John Houston wasn't exactly, you know, Mr. Forthright and Johnny on the spot. Well, no, he was not. He spent most of the time during the filming of the misfits drunk. He spent many, many nights gambling all night long and would go to the set hungover and often would sleep in the director's chair. And not only that, another thing that is often overlooked is that the marriage between Marilyn and Arthur Miller at that point was unraveling. And Miller was very bitter about that. And he constantly rewrote the script to change the line. And he used that movie as sort of like a bludgeon to beat Marilyn with. Mm. And he was constantly giving her new pages of dialogue to remember. It got so bad that Clark Gable refused to accept any more changes. And I think she probably was late a lot because they were constantly changing the script and she had to learn new, new lines of dialogue. But, you know, Houston amassed about $50,000 in gambling debt, which today is probably worth about 500000 uh, And when the casino decided that they were going to have to collect the debt, Houston didn't have the money to pay. And it's reported by Donald's photo that he used that as an opportunity to coerce Marilyn's doctors into hospitalizing her so that he could negotiate for more money. That wow. was the one reason why they put her in the hospital. It wasn't because she had a nervous breakdown. Marilyn's stand-in, Evelyn, uh, what was her name? Moriarty. Yeah. yeah, testified that everybody knew Marilyn had troubles. Everybody knew that. But uh, she was. they were blaming her for everything. And apparently, 
uh, Frank Taylor, who was the producer of the movie, finally convened a meeting after Marilyn had been put in the hospital by her doctors to say that she had been suffered a nervous breakdown. And even Arthur Miller got mad because he knew that wasn't true. He knew what had been going on. And Evelyn said they exaggerated everything to cover for uh, Houston's excessive drinking and all of his gambling and his general wastefulness on the movie. Apparently, he asked for take after take after take, even when the actors were satisfied, he would want another take, which is kind of like uh, what he did on most of his movies, from my understanding. So here's the thing, you know, again, Marilyn getting all of the blame and all of the criticism. And in reality, there could have been a cover up for John Houston's actions during the set of The Misfits. So let's move on to cassette 96. It's Jane Russell. And Jane Russell was obviously in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. So obviously they knew each other. And she did talk more favorably about Marilyn, but certainly wouldn't call her a dear friend. So let's clear this one up. Well, I think they were friends and called themselves friends while they were filming the movie. But I think it's probably an exaggeration to say that Marilyn and Jane Russell were dear friends. They weren't. And I don't think Jane saw Marilyn at all after they filmed uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes up until Marilyn's death. So that would have been, what, nine years. That wouldn't indicate a friendship to me. One thing Jane confirmed in her testimony was that Marilyn didn't maintain a lot of friendships. Jane testified that Marilyn kind of went from one group to another. She didn't go back and seek out any of the people who had become close to her, which It's kind of interesting when you stop and think of the number of people who claim to have been dear friends of Marilyn, but here was a woman who didn't maintain close friendships over a long period. And I think that's one of the things that gets bounced around a lot, not only in this documentary, but a lot of people act as if they knew her so well. So let's move on to cassette 92A. It's somebody that actually did know Marilyn through his dad, Danny Greeson, who is the son of Dr. Ralph Greenson, who is Marilyn's psychiatrist at the time. Well, I think he confirmed what everybody already knew. She was often depressed. She didn't have a whole lot of self-esteem. He was not, Danny was not fond of Hollywood He wasn't fond of people in the Hollywood community. In fact, he even called them phonies and narcissistic characters. But over the course of his testimony, he doesn't really reveal much of anything about Marilyn's life and certainly nothing about her death at all. Yeah, a lot of the stuff that's already been out there, you know, obviously Dr. Greenson used some very unorthodox methods in terms of his patient. Uh, But then they went on to cassette 56, which is Joan and Hildy Greenson. Joan is the daughter and Hildy is the wife. I found it very interesting, the innuendos that they used in this one, because there's a lot that Joan Greenson has said that revealed a lot about her father and the treatment that was given to Marilyn by her father. But they seem to talk a lot about the general and the interpreted meaning of that. So let's talk about that. Well, apparently Marilyn uh, was told both Joan and Hildy that she had this new man in her life, and she wasn't going to reveal his identity, but she was going to refer to him as the general. Well, apparently that has been interpreted to mean uh, Robert Kennedy. Evidently, in the, in the Department of Justice, the attorney general is often referred to as the general. But 
I think what's going on there, my theory is that it's kind of Marilyn is kind of playing a, a humorous game with them, telling them that she's involved with this new man that she's going to call the general, but she's not going to tell them who he is. What I call girlish one-upmanship because, <laughs> you know, Joan talks about she's involved with some schmuck, and Marilyn was evidently going out with the second most powerful man in the world. I think she knew, and Hildy even says, the thought of that a romance like that was very titillating, and I think Marilyn knew that, and she was kind of playing them, I think. Playing because, it you up. Know, Marilyn so, had a rather devilish sense of humor. She did. She had a quick wit, for sure. Well, the people that don't want to accept Marilyn's testimony accuse her of lying, and I don't know why in the world they would do that. There's no reason for them to say she's lying. Well, and the thing is, it goes back to who are the people that are telling you the opposite, and those are the people that knew Marilyn well, versus some other people that didn't know her that well, including Cassette 52A, Peggy Fury. So let's talk about her. Why did they use this actress? Well, I'm not really sure. Uh, the funny thing about it is Summers brings up the molestation story that Marilyn wrote about in her incomplete uh, memoir, My Story. And it's kind of curious because Summers basically dismissed My Story as basically a, a pack of lies. In fact, he even called it a pack of self-serving lies reported by a pathological liar and a fantasist. Uh, but but other than other than using Peggy Fury to get that story into this movie, I don't know what, what they used it for. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting because Peggy obviously went on to uh, be a acting teacher under Lee Strasberg. Um, so obviously she knew Marilyn, but it just seems that, you know, there's not a lot that she brings to the table. So, you know, in terms of connecting the dots. So I think that's one of the things that I think is the most challenging of these tapes. So you bring her in to talk about the molestation, but did Marilyn ever really talk to this woman about that? Probably not. So who knows? You know, I mean, we, have to, we can only take yeah. her word. Let's move on to cassette 98. It's Henry Rosenfeld. And who is this person? Because a lot of people well, don't he's know a, who he's a dressmaker, a dress designer that made buying dresses off the rack chic for high-class women living in Manhattan. His designs of inexpensive dresses were good, and apparently he was friends with Marilyn. I've read that he wanted to marry Marilyn and asked her to marry him, and she turned him down. But other than that, who knows if he was as close to her as he says he was. His story that Marilyn at a party admitted that the one thing she wanted most in life, according to him, was to trick her father, her real father, into having a sexual encounter with her. And there's no proof at all that Marilyn ever said any such thing. Well, and it just doesn't make sense because in one of our dramatic episodes, we actually have a scene with Sidney Skolsky, who was a friend a actual real friend of Marilyn and they are on their way out to visit her actual real dad and get in touch with him. And well, according her to her sister, she actually did meet with her father and Scott Fortner on his website wrote, as it turns out, Rosenfeld proposed to Marilyn and was clearly in love with her. 
based on letters he sent, could this incredibly ridiculous statement about Marilyn wanting to sleep with her father be in retaliation for her unreturned affection? I think that's entirely possible. We don't have any proof that is in fact true, but it's just a really, really terrible story for him to say. I just, it's just ridiculous. So here we have cassette 97B, Arthur James. Talk to me about Arthur James. Well, Arthur James is a favorite witness for Anthony Summers. He uh, appears quite frequently in Goddess. He's kind of an interesting character, not unlike Robert Slatzer, really. A friend of mine, Donna Morell, interviewed Arthur James, and he admitted that he has nothing whatsoever to prove he even knew Marilyn. Wow. And according to his interview with Donna, he denied that he said some of the things that Anthony Summers reported in his book. So Scott Fortner has a blog as well, and I'm almost positive he is not listed in any of Marilyn's phone books. So again, to your point, Robert Slatzer was never in any of Marilyn's phone books. So this Arthur James property developer was not listed in Marilyn's phone book. So I doubt very seriously she's going to be talking about the Kennedys with Arthur James when you're not listed in her phone book. It's amazing all these people that says, oh, I talked to Marilyn for hours, months before she died. <laughs> like, And you're not listed in her phone book? I don't know about you, but I'm not talking about intimate details of my life with somebody that's not even in my phone book or in my contacts. Not, not only that, when you look at the, the dates, if you, if you take the date of Marilyn's death and you count back a month and you look at what was going on in Marilyn's life, there's no way she could have been staying at Laguna Beach because she was involved with George Barris taking photographs at Santa Monica Beach. And she was also involved in giving Richard Merriman his interview on Fifth Hell on the Drive. So there was no way she was in Laguna Beach. Well, and there's no record of it again. No, no but a Maryland, Maryland apparently could just go anywhere she wanted to. She could desubstantialize and appear places without anybody seeing her. I mean, that's, that became clear to me. She had this special gift that she could just disappear. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, she could turn on Marilyn Monroe and she could disappear and, and be that kind of frail, kind of wafy, kind of hidden behind the scenes with her sunglasses and her scarf, et cetera. Let's move on to cassette 81A. Milton Green obviously knew Marilyn and he spoke pretty nicely of her in this, but let's talk a little bit about their relationship. They were very close. I mean, they were very good friends, but apparently the falling out was over Marilyn Monroe Productions and the fact that Arthur Miller was jealous of Milton Green. The thing that interests me about this testimony is that in his usual manner, Summers wanted to get to the sex. And he asked her when Marilyn was married, was she, was she a good and faithful wife? I don't know what he expected to hear. I think he probably expected to hear that she wasn't. But then Milton said she was, that the thing she wanted most in life was to have a child. That is true. And that true. she would have accepted a child over stardom or and fame. I, what do you think? Do you think that's true? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true too. I, I definitely have what you've heard her say and also just from other people that knew her well uh, said some of the same things. So let's move to cassette number one. Sydney Gilleroff, who is Marilyn, one of many uh, Marilyn's hairdressers. 
What do you think about his testimony in this documentary? Well, I've read his autobiography, and he is definitely a boaster. Uh, he was involved with every person, uh, every actress, and every big event in their life. Okay? <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. He, he is just full of himself. Yeah. And I asked Gary about Sydney if he actually how he felt about Sydney or if Sydney could be trusted and Gary told me that he felt like what Sydney said could not be trusted. Uh, there's no proof, you know, he says he talked to Marilyn the night of her death and then there's have one book where he tells the author he talked to her twice that day. Wow. You know, if if somebody tells a story, then I read differing stories from the same person in different books then I begin to doubt that person because if it's the truth or it actually happened, wouldn't they tell a consistent story? Oh, they would. And this is notorious because there's a lot of people that went to the media that talked about Marilyn and Bobby Kennedy. And yet when the DA, the Los Angeles DA did their investigation, they told a different story. I think that's probably happened 99% of the time. <laughs> they either told a different story or they didn't want to be involved. They didn't want to be involved or they were under oath. So that make it that made it more real. It's not their 15 minutes or one minute of fame. You know, then you've got cassette number 80, which is Jeannie Martin. And that's an interesting choice to use. So what do you think about this story that she told? Well, I mean, it follows in line with all of the others. How do you prove or disprove what she says? You can't. She was Dean Martin's wife. She basically talked about the predatory nature of the Middle Kennedy brothers, primarily John. Summers asked her if Bobby was a grabber. Jeannie Martin answered, yeah, but not in the terms that Jack was. But they don't elaborate. Follow up and say, what exactly do you mean not in the terms that Jack was? Now, she claims that JFK uh, put his hand under her blouse and fondled her breast. Okay, I don't know that that happened. I mean, I have to take her word for it, right? Yeah, you know, and obviously Dean Martin was very fond of Marilyn. And we had uh, Dina Martin, who is Dean Martin's uh, daughter, on with us. And one of the things that she said in an interview with her was that when they heard that Marilyn had passed away, they were up at a ranch up in Santa Barbara on vacation. And when her dad found out that the whole family came home and obviously Dean and the rest of Hollywood weren't invited to Marilyn's funeral, but it was very devastating for her dad. And her dad was not a big talker. So when he was going through something emotional, he just got quiet. And none of that was actually talked about. Again, it's about the innuendos about the Kennedys. It's not really well, it's all about bringing the fact that we've got to tie Marilyn to the Kennedys. <laughs> that is a that is a industry that's got to be kept going at all cost. At all costs. Yeah. Whether it's true or not, keep it out there in the public eye that was the Kennedys. They were after Marilyn. And even though he says he makes his big admission at the end of the movie, it still maintains that connection. You know what I'm saying? If you read um, William Sullivan's autobiography, who was the deputy director under Hoover, he basically said that Hoover tried to catch Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, in compromising situations, but he never could and never did because Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, was almost a Puritan. Well, and I think we have to also distinguish who JFK was and how we know him to be today 
versus Robert Kennedy. And there's no other person that anybody has ever come forward with, with the exception of Marilyn Monroe. It's not like you hear about all these other starlets that we've heard with JFK. So the thing is, is that again, this is all innuendo. It's all rumors. And I can't believe it, Donald. We are only through half of these tapes. We're going to stop here because this is one of our longer podcasts, but we're going to pick up next week, cassette 33. This is a big one. Fred Otash, you know, oh my gosh, have we heard that name over the years as it relates to the Maryland <laughs> story. So we're going to pick up next week. My panel expert has been Donald McGovern. If you want to read more about this whole series and this documentary in detail, go to Maryland from the 22nd row.com and you can get all the details. Donald will be back next week breaking down what is a fact, what is a probable theory, and what is an outlandish rumor. I'm Nina Bosky for Behind the Icon Special Investigation Series. The truth will be known.